According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. Good afternoon. Good to have you with us today. We are ready to handle uh, Ryrie chapter 2. What is a dispensation? Can you tell me? What, what is it? What is a dispensation? It's an administration. Okay. Oh, it's not an era. It's not an era. All right. We were this close. I thought we were going to just cancel class and send you all home. And all right. I guess we need to go ahead and have class then. You guys were this close to just being dismissed and. Calling it a day. But now we've got problems to fix. All right, so we're going to open with a word of prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's commit, let's commit our time for his grace and his glory and begin our class today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you. So thankful. So thankful that we can come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, not on our own merit, not based on anything we've earned and deserved. Father, I thank you for these students. I thank you for their diligence and preparation. pray that you continue to shape our thinking as we study to show ourselves approved. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Christ's name. Amen. I tell you, one of the fun things, besides this afternoon and doing these afternoon classes, is the, uh, the way that everything is just dovetailing together, especially with Ephesians, right? It's just coming together. We have a dispensational uh, passage in, in Ephesians chapter 2. We've got a dispensational class on Sunday afternoons, and so... It's all coming together, and even on uh, the Genesis class, the fact that we've got so much that we're dealing with in the Abrahamic Covenant is is just right there, along with all the other dispensational studies that uh, that you will be doing. So for this book we're reading, uh, we have read, did you do the reading? You read chapter 2, you read chapter 2, you read chapter 2. This uh, left hand means you did not read chapter 2, you did not read chapter 2, okay, but you intend to because now you own the book, and so you will, okay, all right. Next week will be chapter 3, and that will be on, uh, on March the 10th, March 17th, chapter 4. We're going to go week by week by week until the missing week, which is after chapter 7 and before you get to chapter 8. There will be an off Sunday in April, so just be aware of that. Uh, it's still four weeks away, five weeks away still, so we'll, uh, we'll keep announcing that as we get closer. What is a dispensation? No more primary problem than definition. And this chapter does a good job of defining and then describing. And those are different activities. To define a dispensation is one thing, and then to describe a dispensation is something else. And, in fact, you can have a lot of variety in the different descriptions of the different dispensations, but you shouldn't have a variety when it comes to the definition of what a dispensation is in the first place. And so the fact that we do have such varieties in definitions means that we're, we've just opened ourselves up to problems and, and obstacles and things that we have to deal with uh, from time to time. So, uh, not to describe them at this point, but to at least define them and to get the, uh, the, uh, the clear thinking on this. To say that there's a lack of clear thinking is an understatement, and that's because the, very, the most broadcast definition ever, they went to millions and millions of people over dozens of years, 
was uh, published in the in the Schofield Reference Bible, and so it went global, and and uh, we've kind of been stuck with it ever since. Even though there is much to be desired in that original uh, definition, so both from dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists, uh, both are often guilty of the lack of clarity. And so, starting with the original Schofield Reference Bible, a dispensation is a period of time, and right there you're in trouble. Okay, and that's where the critics jump on it, and that's where we have to stop and deal with it. But let's go on. A dispensation is a period of time during which man is tested in respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. Seven such dispensations are distinguished in Scripture. All right, so that's that's kind of what launched things back in the day, and we're talking over a hundred years ago now. We're talking the early 1900s, and. Um, Dispensationalists will use this without thinking further. Uh, Non-dispensationalists will use this to attack it and uh, and other issues there. So it's worth looking at and then it's worth improving upon. And this is not the first time it's been improved upon. It's been improved upon by Schofield himself in other portions of that very same Schofield Reference Bible that featured that that initial uh, inadequate definition. So... um, and I think Ryrie is correct. Non-dispensationalists use it as a convenient scapegoat, and um, it's useful to them because, because as short as it is, it cannot possibly convey all that is involved in the concept of a dispensation. And so, uh, and, and I don't think it was even intended to be uh, the way that it was used. If this concise definition were all that Schofield had ever had said about dispensations, then it would be a fair criticism. But it's not. It is not the only thing he had to say on it. Even in the original publication of the original Schofield Reference Bible, he had much, much more to say on dispensations in the various entries as uh, as they appeared in the text. So that would be fair if that was all he said on it, but because it's not all he said on it, it is not fair to uh, to attack it as if that's the only thing out there. He does have more to say, then uh, that's not a fair critique in the 1960s, you had a revised New Schofield Bible. It was published by a, a, a team of uh, mostly Dallas Seminary guys and, and other prominent dispensationalists of that era, including, I think, Ryrie. Um, and so they, they improved that statement. They had other added paragraphs underneath it and, uh, and those things there. All right. This is no different than, for example, the analogy with another doctrinal area, the conservative, when pressed for a concise statement of his theory of the atonement, could answer, I believe in substitutionary atonement. And that's a good short statement. Can you say more? Of course. Should you say more? Well, it depends. You know, what, what are you looking for when you're asking for a definition of atonement? What are you looking for when you're asking for a definition of dispensations? Okay? So... Short definitions can be useful and very frequently are made. Um, do they need to be lengthened out and expanded for a more fuller, con- of course, for a more fuller conversation? Same thing with that uh, initial Schofield definition. It's inadequate on its own, but um, it has been improved upon many, many times. And we have some good definitions here in this chapter uh, from, from uh, Schaefer, from Ryrie, from others that, uh, that were okay to, to deal with that. Um, so yeah some of the critics will point to a lack and they'll say see that's a lack that's a weakness that's wrong throw out the whole system just throw it all away give up walk away from it none of it has any validity 
uh, because the, the, uh, the Greek oikonomia does not reference time. It's not a time reference. And you guys are calling it a time reference. You're saying that a dispensation is a period of time. Or you're saying that the dispensation is an era. No, oikonomia does not have a time component intrinsic to the verb. Okay? However, given the fact that all of these dispensations we're talking about have occurred within the created dimension of time, that they have become in a sequence, one after the other, across the, the spread of time, then it's not the worst thing in the world to, to speak of time periods as they relate in the before-after sequence, right? So the church followed Israel. Israel followed the Gentiles. The Gentiles followed the angels in the various uh, oikonomias that have been uh, placed upon this earth. And because they followed in that sequence and they all occurred within the created dimension of, of space-time, right? the physical material universe of space-time, then um, it's, it's common to use language of before and after and while and during and, and age and time. And, and age is not an unbiblical word. There are various ages that we can talk about. And it's useful to relate ages to dispensations. And you can do so a couple of different ways. And I'm going to try to spell those out as well. Maybe not today, but in, uh, in some upcoming classes. So, uh, you will notice, for example, that in my diagram, in my diagram, I prefer to put the stewards on top. And so, angels, man, Israel, church, and Christ, I put the vested stewards at the top level, and then I have ages underneath that. So, for example, with man being the steward, the age of innocence, age of conscience, age of human government, those are subdivisions. But as we switch from innocence to conscience to human government, we did not have a change of the overall steward. It was still humanity. It was still the Gentiles, right? Same thing with Israel. Age of promise in between Abraham and, and Moses. The age of law from Moses to Jesus. The age of the incarnation during the earthly life of, of Jesus Christ. Those ages came and went in a sequence. But the overall stewardship did not change because the steward was still Israel. The steward stayed the same even if the ages or the conditions changed over time. Now that, I'll get to you in a minute, that um, is my preferred way of thinking. Whereas when I'm charting and diagramming, remember we're great at our diagrams, when you're charting and you're diagramming and you're putting biblical concepts into a framework, um, this, is, this, this resonated with me as a useful classification to, to use the stewards at the top level. Angels, Gentiles, or man, Israel, church, to use the, put the stewards at the top level. I believe Jesus Christ will be the personal steward for the thousand generations of the, uh, of the fullness of times. Jesus and his bride, which is, which is us in Christ. Um, so putting the stewards at the top level and then having the various ages underneath. Now, that's not the most frequently found model that's out there. And it's much more common to have it flipped because most diagrams, rather than stressing the steward, they actually stress the economy. And by stressing the economy, 
then innocence is different from conscience. Conscience is different from human government. Different from promise. Different from law. And so, if they call it the dispensation of law, then that label is not identifying the steward. You just kind of have to know that the steward is Israel because the dispensation of law is stressing the economy. And so... In most of those diagrams, you're going to find the top level is actually the economy. And it comes in a sequence. And so you can end up actually with seven pretty quickly, or six or seven, or even eight, depending on how you break them down. But your first three are all Gentile, and then the next three or four are all Jew, and then you have a church, and things like that. But you get larger numbers because you're assigning a new stewardship because of the new economy. Make sense? Whereas I think my model is preferable in that if you're not changing the steward, if the steward is still Israel, whether or not you're under promise or you're under a law or you're in the presence of the, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, or you're in the tribulation or you're in the millennium, if, if the steward remains unchanged in terms of Israel or the Gentiles or the church, until there is a change of steward... I prefer to not label it as a change of dispensation. It's the same dispensation, but just with it in a different age as a subdivision. So we'll talk about that as well. I hope that's clear. All right, did you have a question related to those things? So, yes, I do have a question. Um, is it kind of like um, I had it backwards? It's not. It's not that... Eras cor- it's not like dispensations correspond to eras, but eras correspond to stewardship. No. No? No, no. Well, wait, wait. So I'm saying like the... Dispensation the, is stewardship. Right. So there'll be an era or a dispensation. No, not era. A stewardship or a dispensation, but there will be eras that happen during that stewardship. That's what I'm asking. The way I outline it, yes. Okay. Yes, that would be a good way to think of it. That's why I was trying to ask. It's like it's not mm-hmm. that the time corresponds to the dispensation; the stewardship corresponds to time, right? Every stewardship so far has been in a temporal dimension. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's my question, and it has nothing to do with time. Just who, basically, who's who's who has the responsibility in that day? Who is the vested steward? Yes. Yes. Right now, it's the church. Yes. Previously it was in Israel. But there's still a time element here, right? Because it's happening within time. They're all happening within the time stream of, of this physical universe, yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's just, that's not the focus. It's not the era. It's the not word the... itself is not linked to a time concept, yes. Okay. Thank right. you. And then Dan had a question. We need the microphone in the back row. So... So, it seems like we're working awfully hard. I'll just sit right here. We're working awfully hard to, to get rid of the time element when everything happens in time, mm-hmm. which is part of uh, the first question is that every dispensation will happen during time. Yes. Including the dispensation of the fullness of time. Yes. So, time is involved, it's just not the main element, is what we're trying to say. Yes. It, it seems like some of the language we're looking to throw the baby out with the bathwater and ignore time altogether. Because that's Probably, attack. Attack. Probably because <clears throat> the critics are saying oikonomia does not in- involve time. Yes, but it happens in time. Well, sure. <laughs> the second uh, part of my question is, 
Delegation. Dispensation from dispense. God is dispensing authority or is he dispensing uh, responsibility Mm -hmm. or is it delegated authority and responsibility? Yes, delegated responsibility with the corresponding authority to do so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good, good. All right. We're on page 28. We started on page 27. We're going to go to page 48. We're going to... We'll see how, how today goes. All right. Um, later generations did revise definitions uh, to include uh, some of these things. For example, Lewis Barry Schaefer did not emphasize the time aspect of dispensation in his concept. And then also Ryrie himself defined a dispensation entirely in terms of economy rather than age. And that's the dis- definition we're going to get coming up in, in just a few more pages. Any um, critique ought to take into account such definitions as well as Schofield. So there are other definitions out there besides the original one from 1909 or whatever the original Schofield reference Bible definition uh, whenever that was first released. So, um, yeah, and, and, and in part I think it's, it's Weasley um, because obviously uh, these things have unfolded sequentially within the uh, parameters of time itself. And so uh, to, to level an accusation against that on that basis is, uh, is fairly weaselly in my mind. But okay. Um, you know, what, what if we were to throw it back in their face to say, okay, you covenant people, the word covenant does not uh, have any time element whatsoever. Right? And then just start attacking their system on the basis of what a word doesn't mean etymologically. I don't know. The English word dispensation is an anglicized form of the Latin dispensatio, which the Vulgate uses to translate the Greek word. So this is actually pretty similar to rapture, right? Because rapture is an English word that comes from the Latin rapto, which is a translation of the Greek harpazo from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So we end up with a theological term that we have adopted on the basis of its Latin usage. And then people come along and have problems with it to say, oh, 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 that's not a biblical word. Okay. Anyway, um, no issue with it. Uh, The Latin verb is a compound, meaning to weigh out or to dispense. You know, even some things in the army, we used to have dispensaries. And and a dispenser, I don't know if the Air Force had one, but basically it was a military um, pharmacy is what it was. You go to the dispensary to get your prescription filled. And and, and it's just because that's where the, the pills were dispensed. And uh, and that sometimes the dispensary referred to the whole clinic, including the the the, the medic station and the doctor, and and then also the the pharmacy where things were dispensed. Um, anyway, three principal ideas connected: uh, the action of dealing out or distributing. So there's somebody who's the authority that is doing the distributing. Then the action of administering, the action itself by which things are administered and then the action of dispensing with some requirement. That's, that's the most unusual one. Uh, if I'm going to say, today we're going to dispense with any written quizzes, that means we're throwing it out. We're not doing it. Okay, We're, we're going to dispense with something. That's kind of a, an interesting usage that came about, in the English word at least. 
in further defining the use of the same word theologically, the very same dictionary, this is the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, expressly adapted uh, uh, states that a dispensation is a stage in a progressive revelation expressly adapted to the needs of a particular nation or period of time. So there's actually an Oxford English Dictionary defining the word dispensation the way we would, closely, somewhat, in, in a biblical sense. Okay, so the needs of Israel, for example, under law, and you can reference that as a dispensation. The needs of the church under grace, you could, you could reference that as a dispensation. And even the Oxford English Dictionary uh, accepts it as such. Interesting to note that this dictionary also uh, uh, definition of dispensation and age are, are closely related. Now, forget the Latin for the moment. The Greek words uh, are all in the oikonomia family. Oikonomia, and if you say it fast enough, it sounds like economy. Okay, the oi sounds like e, and economia sounds like economy. But yeah, it's where we get our English word economy. Oikonomia comes from the verb oikonomeo meaning to manage, administer, to regulate, even some planning involved there. Uh, but oikonomeno is, is, a, is a verb of, of administration or management. And, uh, and the oikos part is, means house. The namas part means law. So it's the law or the reg- regulations, the management, uh, the administration of a house. That's your economy. The management of a house. So in the household of God on this earth, when he entrusts management responsibilities to different managers, that's what we see throughout the scriptures. And we see that the Gentiles started after the angels, and then we had the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so then there was very much a vested stewardship that was entrusted to Israel. They're presently on hold while he uh, brings about a new dispensation in us. But when we're gone... The, the stewardship duties, the household managers will return back to uh, to Israel. You have uh, the noun oikonomos that speaks to the administer himself, who is the steward. Even uh, the city treasurer, like in the case of Erastus, the city treasurer of Corinth, he is the oikonomos of Corinth. So uh, steward, manager, city treasurer, whatever title you want to give him. In Greek, he's called the oikonomos. So the central idea in the word dispensation is that of managing or administering the affairs of a household. Obviously, some households are bigger than others. Some households, you know, like God's, includes everything, the entire universe. Okay, because what does he not own? And what does he entrust to us? You had a question? Okay, microphone over there. Thank you. Would it be um, correct to call God the Iconomus? would not be correct, because he is the Lord that is appointing. Hmm. The oikonomos is the one that has been entrusted with the duty. What would we call him other than God? We would call him the, the Lord, <laughs> I guess. So, in the parables, and we'll, we'll get to this here, Luke 16, um, the parables, you have a landowner, and he entrusts his land to a steward, to an oikonomos. And so, the, the one that has the authority to delegate is the one who has the ownership Ownership gives you the, the right to sovereignly determine usage. Okay. Right. So God is not the steward. He is the one assigning the stewardships. And he's the one firing stewards when they're not faithful. So that's, uh, that's an important consideration. The usage of the word, 
The various forms are used in different ways, including the verb oikonomeo, I think it's only used once. The nouns are used uh, the other 19 times, including oikonomas, 10 times, and then oikonomia, 9 times. And altogether, you get 20 usages of these three, uh, of these three related terms. And, and they're all worth looking at. They're all very worthwhile. They're all very useful because we glean some features based upon that usage, based upon that biblical usage. And, uh, and it's definitely worth, uh, worth looking at here today. Um, Luke 12 is another one. Who then is the faithful and sensible oikonomos, steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? And so you realize that the steward is working on behalf of somebody else who appointed him, and he's accountable. That uh, at the proper time, that's, that's according to the sovereignty of the one who appointed you. And, and notice they're not his slaves, they're the, 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 the Lord's slaves. The steward is working on behalf of the Lord to feed the, uh, or to be in charge of the slaves, and to give them their rations at the proper time. So there is uh, the first use there in Luke 12. And then we have Luke 16, where you've got an assortment of terms, including all of the expressions, right? So we've got, uh, we've got the verb oikonomeo, we've got both nouns, oikonomos and oikonomia, scattered throughout this, uh, this chapter. He was saying to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, that's an oikonomos. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So he's not faithful. A steward has to be faithful. If he's going to squander the master's uh, possessions, what good is he? The master, uh, you know, he needs a better steward, a more faithful steward. And he called to him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer manage. You can no longer oikonomeo. Give an accounting of your oikonomia, for you can no longer oikonomeo. And so you got all three words there in those first two verses. He calls his oikonomos to account and says, give an accounting of your oikonomia, or you can no longer oikonomeo. He says, you're fired. I'm done with you. So the manager, the steward, says to himself, what shall I do? <laughs> Since my master is taking the management away from me. And the, manager has, the, the, the master has total sovereignty to do this. If the manager is, is, is faithless, get rid of him. Okay? And this is, this is the, the picture of what happened with Israel having their stewardship suspended and then a new stewardship beginning with the church. Okay? And it's not replacement theology because it's not an eternal end to Israel, but it is a present suspension of Israel and their faithlessness having those consequences. Now a new stewardship is underway. And we're being pretty faithless ourselves these days. Uh, but when we're done, when we're raptured out of here, then uh, those faithless stewards will be back on duty with, uh, amazingly enough, uh, a tribulation that brings them to repentance to the point that they will be faithful in the kingdom, uh, even though they've not been faithful up till now for the most part. Anyway, this is a, this is a great uh, uh, chapter here to, to show you all these forms. We also have uh, Romans 16.23. There's Erastus. Uh, Paul is greeting various folks. Uh, Gaius, host to me, to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And that's the oikonomos for the city of Corinth. 
and then Quartus the brother. This is a good verse too, by the way. If, uh, if you ever have somebody tell you that Christians shouldn't be in politics, just ask yourself, well, why was Erastus the city treasurer? And uh, is it wrong for a born-again believer to serve in public office or to serve in the military or to do other things of that nature? First uh, Corinthians 4.1 but a man regard us in this matter as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. And uh, much of what we'll see with the church age is, is that the present dispensation, the present dispensation in which we live, is, uh, was not revealed in the Old Testament, and so it was at that time a mystery. And uh, a variety of connected ministries have now been revealed that applies to us in the dispensation of the church. So uh, the usage is there. Notice, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. So it behooves us to not be like Israel, learn from their bad example, and be better stewards. Be faithful stewards. Because what do you think the consequences are for being faithless in your stewardship? Nothing to do with losing your salvation. Nothing to do with anything of the sort. Okay, and God's not going to go back on His eternal life promises, but... We can be removed from our ministries. We can lose our lampstands. We can be fired as pastors. We can, we can lose our stewardship duties in the ministry pursuits that we would otherwise be still entitled to should we stay faithful. Galatians 4.2. This is a, now this is interesting because this, this comes in an allegory, but still the truth that's contained in this allegory Okay, with, with respect to the free child and the slave child and the, the, the difference there. But um, still, uh, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So, you know, there's no dispensation that's eternal. Every dispensation has a start date and an end date, and it's the father's good pleasure to... Uh, to supervise those. This is a good verse too that I think that helps. This is this points to the uh, the reality of Israel's stewardship that preceded our stewardship. Titus one seven: the overseer must be above reproach, um, as God's steward, God's oikonomos. And so that the overseer office in the local church ministry is in fact called a stewardship. So we have stewardships within the overall stewardship of the church. Does that make sense? And we'll talk about that some more, too, coming up. But every spiritual gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So this is unique to the church age, that uh, in Israel they weren't given spiritual gifts the way we are. And every believer in the present dispensation of the church has a spiritual gift and is expected to be a faithful steward of that grace that we've been given. We want to use our spiritual gift on a stewardship basis as manifold stewards or stewards of the manifold grace of God. All right, you had a question on that? I'd probably come up with an answer, but it just occurred to me, we're talking about stewards of different things. Uh And um, I I was wondering, are we looking at, at individual stewardships of different things or just different things within our stewardship that we're responsible for? I think you could phrase it either way, because I think they're both true. The, the church universal is entrusted with, a stu- with the stewardship mm-hmm. on this earth ever since Pentecost, 
and will continue to have the stewardship of God's house on earth mm-hmm. during the church age until the rapture. Mm-hmm. But within that overall oikonomia, then there are individual oikonomii, the plural, um, that that are features of different ministries, like mm-hmm. the pastoral minister, the, any gift, and the, uh, as it says there, a stewards, good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I, I do think, too, that it does represent the whole body of Christ. Every member of that body is a steward mm-hmm. within that stewardship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at, is, okay. is I am part of the stewardship, uh-huh. uh, management of God's household here on earth, but part of my stewardship within that is whatever realm of ministry and service and, and mm-hmm. giftedness that, that I have as well. Sure. So it's not separate from that, but it's just part of that. Part of that, yeah. yeah. I think that's fair. All right. So this is the usage of the word, and then there's a economia that's used nine times. Important to note that two of them specifically re- use the word like we use them to refer to the dispensation itself. So, uh, like the dispensation of the fullness of times. Ephesians 1.10, you have an oikonomia of the fullness of the times. Okay, And that's a future dispensation. And I don't believe that Ryrie would have held to it the way we do as a post-millennial uh, stewardship. I believe Ryrie was very uh, Schofield Schaeferian and would have equated uh, fullness of time with the millennium. Okay? And that's going to be the much more normative model. Just be aware of that. Uh, anyway, but it is specifically looking forward to something post-church age. And then um, the uh, administration of grace, or the, the administration of the mystery, the stewardship of God's grace in Ephesians 3.2, and the administration of the mystery... Ephesians 3.9. Both of those references uh, are specifically to the current, present uh, dispensation of the church, called the dispensation of grace, the dispensation of the mystery, okay? which was not manifest until us. So, those usages are critical. And then the other ones are there too. You can look those up. So, before even getting to the definition... He starts to look at some of the features just for the word usage, as we kind of already did. Um, but we're going to see in this teaching that we have this uh, this pattern here because of the the uh, the management of a household by a steward or a manager. So basically, there are two parties: the one whose authority is to delegate duties, the one who does the dispensing, and the one whose responsibility it is to carry out those charges. The rich man and the steward, or the manager, plays these roles in the parable. Specific responsibilities. In the parable, Jesus talks about the steward failed in his known duties when he wasted the goods of his Lord. There's accountability along with the responsibility. Part of the arrangement, steward may be called to account. We all are going to be called to account. We all will give an account of the judgment seat of Christ. That's the great recap of the dispensation of the church. It's the owner's uh, prerogative, the master's prerogative, to expect faithful obedience to the duties entrusted. A change may be made at any time. Unfaithfulness is found in the existing administration. I think, obviously, the angelic dispensation was brought to an end in Satan's rebellion and the warfare that followed. I believe the Gentile dispensation came to an end. And uh, with the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the beginning of a Jewish stewardship upon this earth. 
the Jewish stewardship has not come to an end, but is presently suspended uh, as uh, they will be resuming their stewardship duties uh, after the church is raptured. And so Israel will return to their stewardship duties for the tribulation and for the millennial kingdom. All right. And then you can see how those features unfold in the dispensational schematics of most classic dispensationalists, including Schaefer and Ryrie and, and uh, Schofield and Larkin and, and anybody else, uh, Darby, anybody else that you want to point to. You can look at their charts. You can see their schematics. And these features are clearly there. God is the one that does the delegating, the various uh, stewards, as we've talked about, angels, Gentiles, Jews, and church, faithfulness being required, May ending at appointed times. This one here says dispensations are connected with the mysteries of God. Well, ours is certainly. Ours is certainly, but I don't see that mystery language applied to other dispensations besides ours. So I would I would ask Ryrie if he wanted to re rewrite that fourth point. Uh, dispensation and age are connected ideas, but the words are not exactly interchangeable. They are connected, there's no question. Because they come in sequence, and we can we can refer to them as past, present, and future, um, and so they are not interchangeable, but they are connected. And I think the age of promise, the age of law, the age of of uh, the incarnation, things like that, help us to understand that they are they are different periods within the overall stewardship. But the stewardship never changed. It, the Jews had the stewardship when they were under. Abrahamic promise, and they still kept their stewardship even though they were then placed under Mosaic law. The giving of the law did not change their stewardship. The coming of a king did not change their stewardship. Just because David was on the throne didn't change their stewardship. And kings would come and go, didn't change their stewardship. Even when they were taken to Babylonian captivity, they lost their, their political freedom. They, they're still the vested stewards. They didn't change their stewardship. And so we continue to have Israel as the steward right up until the day of Pentecost when the church began their stewardship. Make sense? All right, I saw a light bulb come on there for a moment. All right, good. I like those light bulbs. So, um, they're, not inter they're not interchangeable, but they are connected. And so it's not, uh, I don't think it's a, it's a problematic issue if we happen to refer to an era or an age. Um, at least three are very explicitly in the scriptures. The fullness of time in Ephesians 1.10, the church, which is the mystery, which is the dispensation of grace in Ephesians 3.2 and 9. And then I think the, the allusions to Israel's stewardship, not only in Colossians 1, as Ryrie puts there, but I would also add to that in Galatians 2, which, uh, which we saw uh, a few minutes ago in this class. So uh, they are definitely uh, alluded to in a past tense, um, looking back and contrasting those times with the present dispensation of the church. There can be no question the Bible uses the word dispensation in exactly the same way that we do. And when the critics say, that when they're lying, when they say the Bible does not use the word dispensation the way that we do. All right? But they try it, and they get away with it when they're preaching to their own personal choirs, but we, we should call them on it every time. Even Bowman, a non-dispensationalist, admits that. Okay? Anyway. So, as Ryrie says here, granted, 
Okay, maybe we don't have the label for all seven of Schofield's dispensations, but we have for at least two and really three, and then maybe there's something to this concept after all. Um, yeah. Almost all opponents try to make much of their claim that Scripture does not use the word dispensation in the same theological and technical sense that we do. But that's already demonstrated not to be true. At least twice, probably three times. So, just dismiss that out of hand. But beyond that, it is perfectly valid to take a biblical word and use it in a theological sense as long as the theological use is not unbiblical. And that's what we do with the word atonement. We use atonement theologically in a way that the Bible itself does not do in exactly the way that we do theologically. Yet, it's not an invalid concept because we're not using it in an unbiblical way. So, we can look at the Old Testament atonement with the animal ritual. We can look at Jesus and his work of atonement. And we can see the shadows and the fulfillment. And we're not wrong theologically to use the word atonement in that way. And even Daniel Fuller admits that we're not, we're not uh, violating things when we use the word dispensation in the theological way that we do. To denote a period of time during which God deals with man in a certain way. Okay? And even, here's a non-dispensationalist who's willing to admit it's okay to use the word that way. To talk about Israel in their period of time, the church in our period of time. And God dealt with Israel in different ways than he deals with the church. I mean, it's as simple as that. That's why usually when I, when I meet some, some covenant guys, and especially if they're going to be very insistent on telling me that they're not dispensational, uh, depending on how forcefully they do that, I just try to relax and smile, and then I say, yeah, you are. Okay? You know, you are. And, uh, and we'll see the Schaefer quote here that, that proves it. But um, even if you don't want to be, it's like I'm Catholic. Okay? I'm not Roman Catholic, but I am Catholic because I'm a part of the universal church. Okay? I'm also charismatic because I have a spiritual gift. Right? I'm not a Pentecostal charismatic, but I am charismatic, and I am Catholic, and I am a dispensationalist. And so are they, the, peop the people that don't think they are dispensationalists. So, um, a dispensation may be defined as a stewardship, administration, oversight, or management of another's property. It involves responsibility, accountability, and faithfulness on the part of the steward. So, if we get past this time period thing, we can find some better definitions, maybe, how about a dispensation is primarily a stewardship arrangement, not a period of time. Boom. Okay. So obviously the arrangement exists during a period of time. I mean, the day of Pentecost was during a period of time. It was May 24th, 33 AD. Okay. And so we can put it on a calendar. We can track the time since then. Ages and dispensations are not synonymous, though they may exactly coincide in the historical outworking. A dispensation is basically an arrangement involved, not the time involved. I mean, some of it's just so weaselly. It's like saying, well, you know, a babysitter, there's no, there's no time element in the word babysitter. But it is understood that the kids aren't yours. Some parents have entrusted a, a child to you, or more than one child, and, and they're not going away forever. They're coming back. The date will end at some point. They're going to come home. They're going to want their kids back, the same ones they gave you. Okay? And you've got to be faithful. You've got to be... Anyway, it's, it's, it's basically like that. Maybe we should just write a book on dispensations and call it The Babysitters. You know? And uh, we can simplify things that way. Anyway. 
Basically, it's the arrangement, not the time involved. A proper definition will take this into account. However, I would say a proper technical, hyper-technical definition will take this into account. However, there's no reason for great alarm if a definition does ascribe time to a dispensation. Don't freak out over it, okay? Because every dispensation has come within the created dimension of time. So, but here's an idea. Dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. And that's actually maybe the best out there. And that was the earlier one that Ryrie came up with in the 60s. Uh, published it in a journal, and it's, it's a great definition. A distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. Great. I like that. A distinguishable economy. And so once you say, hey, this is a distinguishable economy, then right away you are invited to, to spell out, well, what distinguishes it? What makes it distinguishable? What, what are the distinguishing characteristics that, that show that it's not the same as the ones before, or the ones after, things like that? So, that can be useful. Also, the idea of economy. There's a benefit to using the word economy. And I think um, we can do the same thing today. We can talk about the Trump economy or the Biden economy, right? And, and we're, we're, we're talking about the same United States of America just four years later, but the same word, they're, they're clearly distinguishable as if one was better than the other or worse than the other, and, and we can observe some differences, okay, just in the cost of groceries and whatnot. So... Um, Anyway, if you use economy at the core of your definition, the emphasis is put on the biblical meaning of the word itself. Economy also suggests that certain features of different dispensations might be the same or similar. I mean, right, in the, in the Biden economy, in the, in the Trump economy, I mean, a lot of stuff is similar, even though a lot of stuff is also different. Okay? Different economic and political economies are not completely different, yet they are distinguishably different. Communist and capitalist economies are basically different, yet there are functions, features, and items in these opposing economies that are the same. And that's so true. You want to talk about a communist economy? Great. You want to talk about a capitalist economy? Great. And you can use the same word economy to talk about both, greatly different, but because they're both economies, then they're going to have some things in common. They're going to have similarities, elements that are, that are the same. And yet, and that's the same thing with dispensationalism. Some things, some things between Israel and the church are very similar. Very similar. But a lot of things between Israel and the church are, are very different. And, and failure to see that, uh, I think, takes the opponents into, into bad places. So, in the different economies of gods uh, running the affairs of this world, certain features are similar. However, the word distinguishable is the definition point uh, to point out that some features are distinctive to each dispensation and mark them off from each other as different dispensations. So, the provision of the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that is distinguishable for our economy. And it was nowhere present in any previous economy. Okay? Our spiritual gifts, distinguishable for our economy, not for their economies. So, the phrase outworking of God's purpose also is useful in the definition. It reminds us that the viewpoint is distinguishing the dispensation is God's, not man's. And you start to realize that there's more than just getting saved. 
because the covenant theology at its core is essentially just totally absorbed in redemption, the personal salvation of, of unbelievers. And, and, and God has so many more purposes beyond just saving unbelievers. Okay? Remedying the lost estate of, of in Adam is uh, God has more to his plan than just that by itself. And so the outworking of God's purpose is useful. And you can see where do the angels fit in that? Where do the Gentiles fit in that? Where do the Jews fit in that? Where does the church fit in that? And our Ephesians class is, uh, is doing a lot of this right now. So, um, hmm. Eric Sauer states it this way, A new period always begins only when, from the side of God, a change is introduced in the composition of the principles valid up to that time. I don't know, I think we can improve on Sauer. I wasn't dazzled by that. Anyway, uh, because some of these things he's describing aren't actually changes of dispensation, they're actually changes of conditions within a dispensation, right? So maybe the economy is adjusted, but the trusted stewards remain the same. And so depending on how you're using the terms, you want to be cautious there. To summarize, dispensationalism views the world as a household run by God. In his household, and I think it's useful to use that term because the Bible uses that term. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I mean, we're, we're keeping things as biblical as we can in this. And um, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. We'll have that coming up in Ephesians 3. So we view the world as a household run by God. In his household world, God is dispensing or administering its affairs according to his own will and his various stages of revelation in the passage of time. That was true for the Gentiles, true for, the church, uh, for Israel, true for the church. More revelation comes, more accountability. To whom much is given shall much be required. Various stages mark off the distinguishably different economies in the outworking of his total purpose. And these different economies constitute the dispensations. The understanding of God's differing economies is essential to a proper interpretation of his revelation within those various economies. And this is where we are great at this, and the covenant guys do the same thing, but they're not as great at this because they're also damaged by not trying to do the same thing, okay? By trying to just be, to have a covenant of grace everywhere they look at, and to read the New Testament back into the Old, and to, and to, to be so salvific in orientation that, that, that it's the only purpose in their view is just saving unbelievers. So, um, Anyway, and yet, even with all that, then of course we'll say, well, of course we don't bring a goat. Of course we trust the blood of Christ. Well, then, according to Schaefer, you're a dispensationalist. Okay? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, tell me why not. Okay? But then you get into very long discussions. I, I have found trying to get a covenant guy to abandon his covenant view is like trying to get a Calvinist to, to abandon his Calvinism. A lot of times there's a lot there. And they might point to me and say, well, try getting you to, to abandon your dispensationalism. Okay? Actually, that's not hard to do. I'll abandon it tomorrow. If you can show me where my plain hermeneutic takes me somewhere else. But because my plain hermeneutic takes me to dispensationalism, that's where I, I follow my plain hermeneutic. But I'll leave it tomorrow if you show me that my plain hermeneutic has taken me somewhere wrong, and I'll adjust my understanding based upon the plain hermeneutic. 
As long as we keep the plain hermeneutic, we're going to end up dispensational. Consistently applied in every realm of doctrine, including eschatology. All right. W. Graham Scroggie, this was a fun one. I, uh, if I never knew this name before, or maybe I used to know it and then forgot it, uh, Scroggie was a name. I asked Robbie Dean about this, and he said, oh yeah, I've known Scroggie for years, and known of him. Scroggie was a big influence on Colonel Thiem. Uh, Scroggie, um, Robbie was saying, Scroggie had a, held to a Wednesday crucifixion view that Thiem uh, adopted. Uh, there were other things with Scroggie. Scroggie was not a, 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 a he was a diligent uh, student. And uh, so I started tracking down his writings, and I found um, I found one you can get in Logos, although, um, here we go, it's not a real Logos book, it's actually a facsimile edition. They, um, they basically have scanned images of every page, and they haven't gone through and prepared the text and, and done the work to make it a, a real Logos book. But still, you got JPEG images of all the pages, and so you can go to a page that you're looking for, and you can find different things, and then you can zoom in on it and uh, try to make it larger and view on it. But this is kind of interesting, because it caught my attention. Uh, not only the quote... That's why you can track down these footnotes. There was the quote that Ryrie was aiming for, and Robbie had a good quote, not, not uh, Robbie, but Ryrie had a great quote right here by Scroggie, great paragraph. The word oikonomia bears one significance and means an administration, whether of a house or a property or a state, a nation, whatever. In the present study, the administration of the human race or any part of it at any given time. That's how he viewed dispensations. Just as a parent would govern his household in different ways, according to varying necessity, Yet ever for one good end, so God has at different times dealt with men in different ways according to the necessity of the case, but throughout uh, for one great grand end. And that's really a nice quote. It's an adaptation of a, of a uh, uh, Calvin quote, actually. And, and we recognize this. We, our house was governed in a certain way when the kids were really small. The government of the house changed as the kids grew older. The, the government of the house changed when, you know, in teenage years or with adult children. There's, there's adjustments to the administration of a household depending upon the unique circumstances and conditions present at the time. So, uh, anyway, if you've got a bunch of three-year-olds and four-year-olds and you know, small children running around the house and you try to govern your household as if they were teenagers or adults, uh, that wouldn't go well, Okay. And if you try to treat your teenagers like they're two-year-olds, that didn't go well either. Anyway, in the process of tracking down this Ryrie quote, I found some different pages inside of the Scroggy text, which really, really got my attention. And um, he actually speaks about the millennium and then after the close of the millennial age and the time when he delivers up the kingdom to the Father... So in between the end of the millennium and the great abdication delivering up to the kingdom of the Father, he says, this perhaps is the fullness of times of Ephesians 1.10 and is a period of a divine and universal triumph. So Scroggie actually defended the fullness of times as a post-millennial, pre-eternity future dispensation. And actually says this is the first one that's going to end in victory. Because everything else has ended in failure, including the millennium ends in a failure. 
I thought, well, goodness, that's groggy. He uh, he knows something there. <laughs> anyway, I called up Robbie Dean that same afternoon and said, do you know Scroggy? He said, yeah, I know Scroggy. You know he taught the fullness of time? Did he really? I know. Let's look into this a little bit more. All right, Harry Ironside, another dispensationalist, Clarence Mason. So, um, by the way, in last week's quiz, it was ho- horribly overbalanced. Most of the p- names on that chart were non-dispensationalists. There was, what, five, I think. There was just a small number of true dispensationalists. And you could get extra credit if you labeled uh, Bach and Blazing as the uh, progressive dispensationalists. But anyway, this chapter gives us a lot more of the good guys, a lot more of the dispensationalists, including Scroggy and Ironside, uh, Mason, and so forth. Even though the time period ends, certain principles of the Revelation are often carried over into succeeding ages. So yeah, there'll be elements of Israel's stewardship that you know we can find analogous in our stewardship. Some principles may carry over. Truth doesn't cease to be truth. These principles become part of the cumulative body of truth for which man is responsible in the progressive unfolding of revelation of God's redemptive purpose. I, I didn't have an issue with that. That was a good quote. Um, yes. We're talking about the sine qua non. You have to, in your quiz, you'll have to tell me what sine qua non means. Um, more recent movement that calls itself progressive dispensationalism includes some important differences from normative dispensationalism. I would say they're, they're uh, pathetic failures and retreats. <laughs> but that's just me. Okay. Its adherents do not wish to be restricted by a sine qua non. Well, that tells you something. Uh, they acknowledge the straightforward meaning of the word. Namely, uh, dispensation refers to a particular arrangement by which God regulates the way human beings relate to him. Eh, okay, I think we can improve upon that. All right. We'll have more to say in chapter 9 when we get to that progressive dispensationalism thing. Um, so, progressive revelation, the fact that we're learning more. The church has been given more. The, the, the Greek canon gives us things that the Hebrew canon never con- included. Okay, Mystery doctrine, for example. Other information that, that we have in our stewardship, they didn't have. Israel had more than the Gentiles had. The Gentiles didn't even have a canon. There was no scripture until Moses. I think those things are important. So the more information that comes out as revelation is progressively unfolding, then it's useful to uh, to relate that unfolding revelation to the adjustments that happen in the economies uh, from is- from Gentiles to Israel to church to millennium and so forth. So yeah, that course of development should be measured. I did like this interesting quote here. Uh, uh, growing through stages which can be marked by ascensions which can be measured into the perfect form in which they attain at last. I kind of like that phrase, the perfect form which they attain at last, I think is a recognition that the closing of the canon is the perfect thing. That uh, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Some of the discussions we have with our non-cessationist friends that uh, don't understand that the conclusion of the canon is the perfect thing. That the to to end 
with uh, with uh, the the end of Revelation to end the uh, the Greek canon, just like the Hebrew canon is now closed as well. But to close both canons the way that uh, that God did uh, marks now the revelation that we are in receipt of. Right? We have been entrusted that the faith that is once and for all been delivered to the saints. That's uh, that's what we have, and I like. I like the label they're calling it the perfect form. All right. Some other pages there. I'm up to page 38 now, so we're gaining ground. Um, one of the other objections that came, um, the critics didn't like dispensationalism early, middle, late. They still hate it to this day. They're still beating it up. They're writing books today about how we're fading from human history and we're going to be the rise and fall of dispensationalism, that there won't be any more dispensationalists uh, you know, 20 years from now. Um, anyway, one of the criticisms they say uh, destroys the unity of the Bible. It destroys it. It chops people up into different groups. You're destroying the unity of the Bible. Or um, the Bible ceases to be a self-consistent whole. This theory, he calls it a theory, that's Burkhoff, is he says this divisive in tendency, dismembering the organism of Scripture with disastrous results. The charge that dispensationalists see no value in the Sermon on the Mount, or we won't pray the Lord's Prayer. And all of these accusations are, are silly. Uh, we have great value in the Sermon on the Mount, but we realize it's secondary. The primary application is Israel in the millennial future, but that doesn't mean we throw it away or we pretend it's not there. We have great value in the Sermon on the Mount. We have great value in the Old Testament, great value in, in the law. Okay, We're not under the law, but we don't rip it out of our Bibles. There's, there's great value. It's also remarkable that, as, as Ryrie says here, an interesting historical fact in the second edition of the Schofield Reference Bible and retained in the, new, in the 1967 edition, the section entitled A Panoramic View of the Bible was added to show the unity of the book. <laughs> so dispensationalists were working hard to say, look, we have the better picture, the, a framework of the, of the whole thing. And all these attacks saying, oh, we're dismembering the Bible. No, we're showing a, a complete panoramic view. And if you want to see it, there it is in the in the... Schofield uh, Reference Bible, a panoramic view of the Bible. Several pages here on how it's one overall message from Genesis to Revelation. But the critics will say, oh, no, no, you're, you're dismembering the Bible. Anyway, this section shows seven marks of unity. All right. Now we get to the actual characteristics of a dispensation. And we're going to see... This is true. These are, these are general descriptions. I think there's value in this. I, I do pick a few nits in this section here. But a different governing relationship with the world into which God enters into each economy. And, and some people don't like this. They want to run the church like God was running things with Israel. But I'm sorry, we're not a theocratic nation in the midst of, uh, of Gentile nations. Okay? We are a heavenly people residing in this fallen world as pilgrims and strangers. And, uh, you know, Israel was the theocratic earthly nation surrounded by Gentile nations. It's not us. And I'm a pastor teacher, a church-age pastor teacher. I'm not a, uh, an Old Testament theocratic prophet. I don't storm the, the, the palace and tell the king, thus saith the Lord. That's not my role. That, was, that happened in Israel under their stewardship. So there's a different governing relationship with the world into which God enters into each economy. And 
resulting responsibility of mankind in each of these different relationships. And you can go through and you can see. I mean, things were different before sin entered the world of the fall of man. And things were different after sin entered at the fall. God's relationship was no longer always direct. Okay? He used to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Couldn't do that after the fall, because now they're sinners. After giving the law to the Israelites through Moses, there's a change in the economy, change in the administration. I did think there was a flaw here, though, as Ryrie was talking about it, the Mosaic Code. His principal mode of government was the Mosaic Code, which was a new thing introduced at that time. So, new revelation is coming to kick off the new economy. And um, But then he says it means the responsibility upon mankind was conformity to that code. I, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Mosaic Code was only vested in Israel. The Gentiles had no duty to be conformed to the Code of Moses. And then, of course, there's the coming of Christ, a new governing arrangement, obviously in the church age. We have distinguishing characteristics of different dispensations. So you can start noticing a change in God's governmental relationships, uh, a resultant change in man's responsibility, a corresponding revelation necessary to affect that change. And you know what's interesting? That paragraph there, I don't think most covenant guys would really take issue with that. Because I think they would themselves say, yeah, things are different now that Christ has had his victory on the cross. But they just don't want to take it to the, to the, to the full dispensational schematic. All right, you had a question? Something just crossed my mind. Um, you mentioned that after the rapture, Israel starts sacrificing animals and practicing Mosaic law again. Mm-hmm. Why is that necessary if Jesus has already died on the cross in the previous dispensation? Because it does. Because it reverts. Because so, And they may not immediately, because until they get a temple, they can't. So it depends on when they build their next temple. Uh, but they will build a next temple that might be in the church age, it might be after the rapture. We don't know when they're going to build that next temple. But they will have a temple, and they will be offering animal sacrifices. Um, but, but remember, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. And the Jewish people are not yet in faith. And so when they rebuild their new temple and when they reinstitute their animal sacrifices, it is not because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It's because of the rejection of Jesus Christ that they build their third temple and they reinstitute animal sacrifices. Do they still acknowledge that, that Jesus existed and did all that stuff on the cross in the previous dispensation? Oh, in unbelief, they, they say Jesus was a false Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth was not the Messiah, and that he was a blasphemer and he was rightly executed by the Sanhedrin. I mean, even in the tribulation? Uh-huh. They'll say it's the same thing? At the beginning, yes. Okay, okay. And then, only until they start to be humbled and they start to be repentant, only at the point that like the 144,000 others start getting saved well, then more and more of them start to realize that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. But those that continue to reject Jesus Christ in the tribulation will continue to observe Mosaic law. At least until Antichrist says, okay, that's enough, now you have to start worshiping me. And that's, uh, that's a different, different episode. Okay? Thank you. So good question on that. All right, follow up. Okay. Oh, and we have one on the desk also. Was okay. your original question about the tribulation or about the millennium? Yeah, he was asking about the tribulation. Oh. Okay. I That's a different answer. I misheard you, but the different answer is... Yeah, why. the millennium is a different answer. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then the recording desk, we have a question there. I heard tribulation, so that's what I answered. Right. So my question was about the millennium. So I remember you saying that there won't be any unbelievers at the beginning of the millennium. Is that right? Did I hear you? Did Correct. I remember correctly? Correct. And Unbelievers so, will be removed prior to the millennium beginning. Yes. So therefore, at the beginning of the millennium, will they stop animal sacrifice in the temple? No, they're actually going to build a fourth temple. There will be the Ezekiel temple from Ezekiel 40 through 48, and the millennial temple will be built, and there will be animal sacrifices reinstituted there. Why? That, but that's for different reasons, not for the... Not for the unbelief reasons of the tribulation, the animal sacrifices of the millennium will be by faith in obedience to the prophecies of Ezekiel 40 through 48. So those are that's a different issue. Yeah. All right, and I'll I'll address can you, that. Can you time. summarize why? Maybe we'll see how, how much time I have at okay. the end of this hour. All right. So. Distinguishing characteristics of different dispensations. And we went through those. Now, some secondary characteristics. And these, um, I want to improve upon these, okay? Um, a lot of authors, Schofield and others, uh, Larkin, others, have written about a test, a failure, and a judgment. And you're going to encounter that depending on how many of these older dispensationalists that you read, especially. A test, a failure, and a judgment. So you can, you know, you have a test... And then, like, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a test. And they failed, because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the judgment, they were kicked out of the garden. Okay? So you have a test, a failure, and a judgment. And so, so you have the, the end of innocence. And under that economy, the economy of innocence concluded in failure, and now it's time for a new economy, an economy of conscience. Okay, and that's not going to go so well either, because you're going to have the flood, you're going to have the Tower of Babel, okay, and you're going to have, and so then you're going to have test and failure and judgment, and then you're going to have, um, of course, the flood is a judgment, and the Tower of Babel is a judgment, and then you're going to have um, other problems with the Age of Promise, test and failure and judgment. And it's pretty common among the older dispensationalists, and, I, and I'm not, it's not, it's never been a, a feature that I've, I've, I've embraced and medazzled by and just love to use. I rarely even re mention it. Except, I think, some improvements we can do with this, if we expand this, test failure and judgment, if we expand this to involve the angelic observations. Because the test failure and judgment, you would, I would also want to add, what are the lessons learned by the angels that are watching? The elect angels that are watching, the fallen angels that are watching, what are the lessons learned by the angelic realm in watching God uh, unfold these various economies? I think that would be a very useful... I would, I would read that and eat that up for days. I would really like to see, because the angels came first, and then humanity followed. And in fact, all of the human dispensations is, a, is an unfold outworking of matters that I think go back to Satan and his rebellion. They go back to the angelic realm. And so, uh, as Colonel Thiem said, humanity is, is, you know, for the resolution of the angelic conflict and the, the, uh, the unfolding plan of God there and in answering many of those things dealing with Satan and his rebellion. So, that being the case, I would love 
to have this expanded to not only include a test of failure and a judgment, but principles of teaching and lessons learned that apply to the angelic realm so that when the closing argument comes in the fullness of time, everything else has been dealt with. Okay? And so, really, uh, at the close of the millennium, when Satan and the fallen angels are thrown in the lake of fire for all eternity, everything that needs to be taught to convict them of their guilt will be laid out through the, the human stewardship. So I hope that helps. Um, such tests are not for the purpose of enlightening God, but for the purpose of bringing out what is in people, whether faith or failure. And I would add to that on an instructive basis to the angels that are watching. Dispensationalists often have, in their writings, tried to isolate the particular test for each dispensation. Might be helpful to the student, but can only be at best a partial statement of the entire responsibility. So, you know, if you try to tell me, what is the big test for the church? You know, and how are we doing on that? Right? And did that start in the first century? Or have we just now gotten to, the, to it in the 21st century? You know, if you've got a dispensation that's 2,000 years in duration, are we all facing the same test? You know, so are we all experiencing the same failure? Or, or, or what are we really doing? And this is where I think some of the, some of the earlier writings are not as helpful as, uh, as they might otherwise be. Is failure a necessary part of Just because the fall and the flood and Tower of Babel and, and the enslavement of the Jews and the failure in the wilderness and the, uh, the dispersion into Babylon and the crucifixion of the Christ and the apostasy at the closes of the church the Gog Magog rebellion that ends the millennium. So yeah, it's pretty well. Find me a find me a dispensation that hasn't concluded in, in an abject failure. You have to wait till the fullness of time to find one that ends in victory when Jesus hands the kingdom of the Father and says, Here's a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um anyway, that's uh an interesting study there. We get, I'm going to skim through this just because of our shortness of time. I found this interesting, cross-sectional and longitudinal, and he uses those terms back and forth. I think I took out any quiz questions on longitudinal and cross-section, so yeah, you won't have to worry about that on your quiz. Um, hmm before either covenant or dispensational systems have been developed. That's another thing, too. When they say, oh, well, Darby invented that, it's a real young system, it's a real new theology, uh, as if the covenant of grace and the, new, and the covenant theology goes way back to whenever. It does not. Okay? It, it's actually a post-Reformation development with uh, students of Calvin, primarily. Anyway... This is the great quote on Calvin that I thought was echoed by Scroggy in his quote, or echoed by Mason in his quote, that different households run things differently depending on how old their kids are. Okay? And, and Calvin's quote actually expands it with different metaphors as well. God ought not be considered changeable merely because he accommodated diverse forms to different ages. He knew they would be expedient for each. If a farmer set certain tasks for his household in the winter, other tasks for the summer... We shall not on this account accuse the farmer of inconsistency or think that he departs from the proper rule of agriculture, which accords with the continuous order of nature. In like manner, if the householder instructs, rules, and guides his children one way in infancy, another way in youth, still another in young manhood, we shall not on this account call him fickle and say that he abandons his purpose. 
Why then do we brand God with a mark of inconsistency because he has with apt and fitting marks distinguished a diversity of times? And he's right on target. And, and you know, Calvin is, is that close to becoming a dispensationalist in that, uh, in that one quote right then and there. Anyway, covenant theology with its all-encompassing covenant of grace glosses over the great epochs and climaxes of history lest they disturb the unity of Scripture and introduce something so distinguishable that a dispensation might have to be recognized. And so, yeah, it's like they really go overboard in that direction to, to not see those distinctions. Okay? It's almost as comical, if it wasn't sad, it's almost as comical as a news report that wants to tell you everything about a perpetrator of a crime except that person's skin color. Okay? And so it'll tell you, oh, it was a man in his 50s. You know, um, you know, of medium height and build. And, and they, they don't tell you because they don't want to be called racist for saying, yeah, it was an African-American or it was a black guy or it was a white guy or it was a Hispanic guy or whatever. They're, they're, they're getting to the point now where they don't even want to include the race at all. Unless maybe it was a white guy. If it was a white guy, they can go ahead and tell you, yeah, it was a crazy white guy with a gun. But otherwise, you read about these perpetrators in the news and you wonder, wow. Anyway. They don't want to see anything that's distinguishing. And so they just won't talk about it at all. So the principal characteristic of a dispensation is the economic arrangement and responsibility that God reveals in each dispensation. So we have revelation, we have responsibilities in the church age that are unique to the dispensation of Israel. Here's the sine qua non. Latin phrase sine qua non. The absolutely indispensable part literally in the Latin, without which it is not. Okay? So if you take this out, it's not that anymore. It is indispensable. It's like peanut butter is the sine qua non of peanut butter cookies. My Aunt Phyllis, when she was a newlywed, she married my Uncle Dick. She wanted to do something nice for her new husband a week after they were married, and she baked him peanut butter cookies, which was kind of her specialty that she learned and developed as a child. And... Um, they, they didn't taste very good at all. And they were trying to figure out what was wrong with it. And she was devastated because she was just a brand new newlywed wife. And the problem was she forgot the peanut butter. She left the peanut butter out of her peanut butter cookie recipe. Okay? So safely to say, if you leave the peanut butter out of peanut butter cookies, you have lost your sine qua non of peanut butter cookies. Because without which, it is not. So this is what we ask ourselves. If you take something away from dispensationalism, is it still dispensationalism? Well, it's not if you're taking away the sine qua non. And this is Ryrie's contribution here, and, and I, I, I think this, he's right on target. So, what marks off a person as a dispensationalist? What is the sine qua non of the system? Theoretically, it ought to lie in recognition of the fact that God has distinguishably different economies governing the affairs of the world. You would think that that would be a sine qua non. However, the covenant guys will agree that God has had distinguishably different economies at different times, and obviously they're not. Uh, you know, They'll even use the word. Burkhoff will use the word. Some of these guys will use Charles Hodge believed there were four dispensations, but he's not a dispensationalist, neither is Burkhoff. So um, a person can believe in dispensations and even see them in relation to progressive revelation without being a dispensationalist. Is the, so the answer is no. Is uh, the essence of dispensationalism the number of dispensations? 
If you have seven and you match Schofield, then boom, you're a dispensationalist. But if you only have four, okay, Colonel Thiem had uh, Gentiles, Jews, Church, and Christ. Those were his fourfold divisions. He was a dispensationalist. He didn't have seven, but he simplified it, streamlined it, and I was good with it. That's what I grew up with. That's how I learned as a child. No, it's not the number of dispensations. Schofield taught seven, Hodge taught four. That doesn't make Schofield a dispensationalist and Hodge not. Okay? Maybe the issue is um, premillennialism. Nope, that's not an issue either because you've got covenant premillennialism. So they're not dispensational. What is it? Being a premillennialist does not make you a dispensationalist. However, the other way around is true. If you are legitimately dispensational, you will be premillennial. You have to be. So it does go that direction. So what then is the sine qua non of dispensationalism? The answer is threefold. See how big that is? Did that get your attention? What then is the sine qua non of dispensationalism? Well, first of all, a dispensationalist keeps Israel and the church distinct. If you fuzzy those, you're not a dispensationalist. If you keep them distinct, I'm starting to suspect you're one of us. Okay? And why do you keep Israel and the church distinct? I'm just out of time, or we could read these quotes from Gabeline and Fuller and Schaefer. Um, but why? Point two. This distinction between Israel and the church is born out of a system of hermeneutics that is usually called literal interpretation. So there's your second sine qua non. Israel and the church are distinct, and why are they distinct? Because we use a literal, a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical interpretation. Literal, normal, plain. We don't allegorize. We don't spiritualize. And then thirdly, it concerns the underlying purpose of God in the world. We believe the purpose of God is more than salvific. The covenant guy is limited to redemption. Okay? But the plan of God is bigger than that. The plan of God includes angels. The plan of God includes Gentiles. The plan of God includes Jews. The plan of God includes bride of Christ. There are multiple plans at work, heavenly and earthly. The underlying purpose of God is doxological. It's the glory of God. And specifically, it's the it's Christologically doxological. It's the glory of Jesus Christ. The Father is dedicated to exalting Jesus Christ from Alpha to Omega. So, a dispensationalist will typically say the glory of God is the broader purpose as opposed to the salvific uh, redemption of humanity or the Christological center. All right, so there's those three. The three... What does sine qua non mean and the essence of dispensationalism? All right. The essence of dispensationalism, then, is the distinction between Israel and the church. That should be a capital C, church, church universal. This grows out of the dispensationalist consistent employment of normal or plain or historical grammatical interpretation. We get there because of our hermeneutic. We don't change our hermeneutic because of the theology we like using. Right? We'll be accused of that. They'll say, oh, you're just reading that through a dispensational lens. No. But I'm given a dispensational framework when I read every passage I read with a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. It's the product, not the cause, of my hermeneutic. And I'll abandon it tomorrow. 
if my hermeneutic takes me somewhere else. If my hermeneutic proves that the structure is invalid. So the consistent employment of normal, plain, or historical grammatical interpretation. And this is where the covenant guys are not consistent. They'll, they'll use literal for certain things, but if you're going to get to an eschatological passage about the, the, the coming kingdom in the future, oh, no, 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 no. Now we've got to allegorize. Now we've got to get spiritual. We, gotta, we can't accept the plain language of what is still future for us today. So they'll have literal for the past and allegorical for the future. And because they're not consistent in their hermeneutic, they don't go where we go. We go consistently literal everywhere. It reflects an understanding of the basic purpose of God and all his dealings with mankind and glorifying himself, I would say exalting and magnifying his Son. That the Father's purpose is to glorify the Son. And the Son's purpose is to glorify the Father. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to spotlight both. Anyway, read the plan of God, reader, and you get the better picture on that. Uh, whereas, uh, through, um, through salvation and other purposes as well. Salvation's included, but it's not the totality. Saving fallen man is not the totality of God's plan. It's included, but the plan is bigger than that. And that's where dispensational theology has the edge over covenant theology. All right, one minute remaining. Last-minute questions, last-minute panics. I do have your quiz here. I also posted it before I left home this morning. So some of you maybe already found it if you saw it posted in the, uh, in the theology group on the church app. So. Comments, questions, complaints, criticisms, compliments. Okay. Oh, yeah, financial donations. That was an old drill sergeant I had in Fort McClellan, Alabama. He would say, any compliments, any criticisms, any financial donations? You can take those at this time. Nobody ever paid him. He was something. He was from Kentucky. I'll never forget him. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for truth. Thank you for your word and uh, for the plain way we take your word. Thank you for each chapter as we come to. And uh, again, thank you. Bless these students as they continue in their ongoing reading. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.